guys. Welcome back to the Beck and Call podcast. I'm your host, Merritt Beck. I am a longtime fashion blogger and a single woman in my 30s who loves to chat all things life, work, and love. So I wanted to bring that to life on this podcast. You can consider the Beck and Call podcast a weekly catch up with your internet bestie, where I discuss recent recs and reviews, answer listener questions, and discuss fun, interesting topics relevant to women in their 20s, 30s, and beyond. Each episode follows the same structure with dedicated segments you can rely on week after week. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello, friends. Hope you all had a nice weekend and that your week is off to a great start. Last week was super busy work-wise for me, and I feel like this week will probably be about the same. My mom and stepdad are going to be in town this Friday, and then I leave town for California for a week on Saturday, so I'm definitely in overdrive trying to get as much done as I can before they get here and before I leave town. And on top of all of that, I actually have quite a few events and other happenings going on during the day this week that will take me away from my desk. I've mentioned this before, but I do my best work when I have long stretches of uninterrupted time at my computer. I'm definitely someone who struggles to stay focused, and I'm simply not as productive when I have things going on throughout the day that might take me away from my desk. So with that said, I committed to three different things on Tuesday, so I can kind of kiss that day goodbye in terms of getting a lot of work done. Friday is also out since my mom will be here and I'm sure I'll be hanging out with her. So even though this week will likely not be as productive, I'm feeling pretty good about it considering how much I got done last week. Aside from a dinner Monday night with my friend Dana, I didn't make any social plans last week until Friday night. So in addition to getting a ton of work done, I was also very healthy all week, which I'm proud of myself for. I feel like over the last month, I've been eating out a lot. And with the anxiety I had switching up my workout routine, which I think I mentioned last week, I felt like it would be a good idea to keep things simple and just cook healthy whole foods this week. So I pretty much just ate protein and vegetables for every meal Monday through Friday. And I'm not going to lie, I actually did feel better and I could see a physical difference in just those few days. Of course, I ate what I wanted when I went to Odalay with my friends on Friday night. I inhaled chips and queso and I got the tris platter, which I always get and honestly wasn't very healthy on Saturday either. But life is all about balance, right? I will say that hint of progress last week felt very motivating, though, um, because aside from the diet, you know, I I changed back to my Peloton workouts and I was just worried that it wasn't going to work as well. And to already see progress in a good direction made me feel really good. So (laughs) I'm really going to do my best to eat that way whenever I'm home and cooking for myself. And I'm going to take that idea with me to California for my trip. And I mentioned this. I think in a recap after my last trip to California in July, since I'll be staying in a villa with a proper kitchen, I've decided I'm going to make myself breakfast and lunch. I usually have lunch by the pool, but they have so many good menu items on their lunch menu and it's poolside. And, you know, I was always tempted to get the, the fries and just the better stuff, the burger. And so instead, this time I'm going to try making my own breakfast and lunch and then eat whatever I want for dinner out at night. In case you're curious, the thing that has been helping me stay on track during the week is by doing some meal prep on Sunday. So I'll usually roast a few different kinds of vegetables and proteins like chicken or fish and store them in containers so I can mix and match whatever sounds good on any given day. For this week, I bought two pre-marinated fish fillets, two pre-marinated chicken breasts. I get these at Central Market and they have great flavors. This time I got 
these Southwest chicken breasts. And for the pre-marinated fish fillets, they're actually pecan crusted halibut. So good. I put it in the air fryer. So delicious. They're kind of crunchy. It's great. Uh, I also got a small rotisserie chicken. I got eggs, one head of cabbage, one bunch of kale, butternut squash, sweet potatoes, spinach, and broccoli. So I know that's a lot, but over five days, or I guess four this week, I'll be making lunch and dinner for myself. So um, it'll go, it'll go away. But I also have two zucchinis and some broccolini from last week that I still need to eat. And I bought a few apples and packages of blueberries. I usually have the blueberries with my veggie egg cups for breakfast. And then the apple as if I'm craving something sweet later in the day, I'll usually pair that with some peanut butter. I love peanut butter. Like I said before, simple and healthy. And hopefully this is something I'm able to keep up with. I do sometimes crave Trader Joe's frozen items like the Gorgonzola gnocchi. It's one of my absolute favorites. I get it every time I go. I also love their cauliflower gnocchi, which I usually prepare with some pesto, artichoke hearts, sun-dried tomatoes. Very, very good. And I also love their soup dumplings, but I'm really going to try and avoid buying things that are processed, packaged, and frozen. I usually make those things when I'm feeling lazy and don't have anything healthy or ready to go. So I think as long as I'm doing my meal prep and I'm giving myself lots of solid, healthy options, I think I'll be able to stick with this, but we'll see. I'm, I'm feeling determined. I'm going to try my best to stick with this when I'm cooking for myself at home um, and then still kind of let myself eat what I want when I'm out and about. I should also say that I did almost all of my workouts on the Peloton app last week, and I definitely think their classes have gotten more challenging since I did them a couple years ago. And I'm very impressed. They also have a lot more longer classes now too, which I appreciate. So before I'd have to stack a bunch of 20 minute classes together. And now they have a lot more 30, 45, and even 60 minute classes, including these new roll call classes, which are strength roll call. And they're meant to be more challenging to like help you get your goals faster, get to your goals faster. And so That's really good news. I was having anxiety last week when I stopped doing the sweat app that I was going to lose everything I'd built (laughs) this year so far. And they were a lot harder than I expected. And I, like I said, I already noticed a difference. And part of that is diet, I'm sure. But anyway, just wanted to update you guys on that since I talked about it last week. Anyway, aside from that healthy eating update and my crazy work week, I didn't have a ton going on last week. I already mentioned that I went to Odalay Friday night with some of my girlfriends, followed by Inward Tavern, and it was so much fun. (laughs) It's such a great spot for a night out. They always have a DJ on the weekends. They have a dance floor, pool tables, an outdoor patio. They also have jello shots. (laughs) And Friday night, they were playing so many amazing throwbacks from my high school days. A few songs that I do remember from that night include Get Low, Pony, Salt Shaker, they even threw some Shania Twain in there. Clearly only the best. But let's just say I had a little too much of a good time that night and I had a pretty lazy Saturday to recover. <laughs> I did manage to get it together enough to shower and drive myself and Reese's over to Emma's house for a pizza night and a puppy play date. So she and Zach, her fiance, were dog sitting for a friend of theirs whose dog was in the same litter as their bulldog, Bowie. So in addition to Bowie, there was Ruby, the other bulldog, my dog Reese's. And then Emma also has another dog named Cece, who's so cute. And she just like kind of keeps her herself. She loves humans, (laughs) but it was a full house of dogs that night. And it was so much fun. Emma made two different pizzas from scratch. One was more traditional with marinara, mozzarella, pepperoni, and basil, which is, you know, my jam. Love that. 
And the other one was a little more inventive and creative and fun. So she used this bolognese sauce from a pasta dish she'd made that week as the base, as the sauce, and then topped it with cheese. And both were so good. I really need to get the recipe for the dough she made, though. It was very chewy and fluffy and perfect. While I enjoyed taking Reese's over there, I will admit I was a little on edge the whole time because the two bulldogs didn't seem too sure about her and they were like twice her size (laughs) and would occasionally growl or run after her, lunge at her. So (laughs) eventually they all calmed down and ignored each other, but I was on high alert when we were there. I'm just a control freak and Reese's, you know, she's so sweet and loves all other dogs she meets, but she's super energetic and playful and jumps around. And it can sometimes be annoying to other dogs, leading to some negative responses. So hopefully now that they've all met and gotten used to each other, it'll be easier the next time they hung out. But I had a really fun night there. I was only there for a few hours and I think I was in bed by nine. So it was a wonderful night. And then yesterday I didn't have any plans. So I did kind of my usual routine. Reese's and I walked. I did a little workout. I got a little work done, which was good since this week is going to be kind of crazy and just kind of watched TV and had an easy night. It was a great weekend. All right. So moving on to another little update. So y'all know how I shared a dating update last week that I'd gotten back on Bumble and had matched with quite a few people. I was really thinking that me removing my job title from my profile was the reason, but just as quickly as those matches happened, they fizzled. Some guys responded once, then never again. Others didn't ask a single question or do anything to strike up a conversation. One even moved the conversation to text and then never responded there. It's just so frustrating to me. I'm about ready to delete all over again and just be done with it. I truly don't know who has the time to spend hours each week swiping and then not even bother to meet with the people you match with. It's just such a waste of time for everyone involved. Like, I guess it's just an ego stroke to see who likes you and then you just don't bother doing anything with that information. Anyway, I shared a bit of this frustration on Instagram last week and wanted to hear what y'all's favorite kind of introduction liners were when you're on the apps, because, you know, mine are pretty typical, depending on when it is, I'll usually ask like, how's your weekend going? Or did you get in, get into anything good over the weekend? Pretty boring, but there's usually some story they can tell. Um, I feel like a lot of the guys that I match with aren't very descriptive in their profiles or don't have too many photos that I can respond to or a lot of prompts. So I usually just keep it simple with that. But here are some of y'all's suggestions for striking up a conversation with somebody you match with. So somebody wrote, I just typed their name only, and that seems to work oddly well. So (laughs) say the guy's Matt. She just writes Matt. (laughs) That's it. I think that's pretty funny. And then another one said very similarly, a simple high first name and then let them do the work. Somebody else submitted, what's the last place you traveled that required a passport? I think that's great, especially if travel is important to you and exploring the world. Another one is, fuck, marry, kill your favorite three drinks, candies, workouts, places to travel, whatever fits. And you can look at their profile to come up with some ideas for what to use in the FMK. Somebody else said, I just put the pizza or ice cream emojis. It's just a question. Do you like pizza or ice cream? Another person said FMK using things they list as hobbies. So again, pulling from their profile. Um, Somebody else said, what does your ideal vacation look like? You can tell a lot about a person by the way they describe this. So that's actually a very good one. And then somebody else asked or submitted, do you order breakfast or lunch at brunch? 
This is also a very specific question that I would never think to ask, but it's actually pretty funny and telling. And then another person said, what's one thing you found during the pandemic you can't live without but never needed before, which is very specific and interesting. And I feel like you're bound to get some intriguing responses from that. So while we're on the subject of dating, I read last week that Dallas ranks number one for infidelity, according to a new index by MyDatingAdvisor.com. In a study of 200 metropolitan areas, MyDatingAdvisor.com used U.S. Census Bureau data to compare relationship satisfaction, life life satisfaction, infidelity intent, and affair activities. They also considered the number of venues to meet for an affair and the volume of searches on Google for affair hookup websites for the rankings. I know this study doesn't suggest it's men doing all of the cheating, but it's certainly not helping my current assumption, thanks to dating apps, that Dallas men are trash. (laughs) All right, moving on to new recs and reviews this week. So my friend Rachel told me about the Serpent Queen when I was at her house about a week ago, and I spotted it on Hulu, which reminded me about it, and I decided to give it a try. So The Serpent Queen is a period drama about the life of Catherine de' Medici, the 16th century French queen, but it has a very different approach than other similar period dramas like The White Queen, The Spanish Princess, Becoming Elizabeth. All of those ones I just listed took a much more serious approach, but The Serpent Queen kind of gave me persuasion vibes. You know, that movie with Dakota Johnson that came out recently on Netflix. It's pretty funny and cynical, and there are moments when the character speaks directly to the camera versus other characters that they're talking with. I've only seen the first episode because that's all that was out when I looked at it, but it hooked me within minutes. It's very entertaining. The writing is quick-witted, and I think it's going to be a really, really good show. But just know it's not very similar to the other period dramas that I've seen before. It's more sharp and witty and funny. I just think the writing's great, and it's going to be great. After that, I started and finished Sins of Our Mother, which is a Netflix docuseries following the unraveling of Lori Vallow and disappearance and murder of her children, Tylee Ryan and JJ Vallow. I remember following the news on the kid's disappearance and being disgusted by just her uncaring demeanor when she's being questioned about their whereabouts. So naturally, I had to watch this docuseries as a fan of true crime. It starts by going through her early life and first couple of marriages, kind of her relationship with religion, and eventually the focus becomes her obsession with the end of days and her relationship with a self-proclaimed prophet, Chad Daybell. Lori herself makes many claims that she's connected with and has spoken to angels who are guiding her on her path. So she's just as wackadoo as Chad. There's definitely some religious psychosis happening. She's, she seems nuts. The docuseries features interviews with her family members, including her eldest son, as well as various friends and people who were following the same doomsday ideologies. It's a wild story. And I think the most upsetting part, at least for me, is her lack of remorse and at times actual excitement when so many bad things are happening to people around her. She even turns it around on her son and tries to make him seem like the bad guy for questioning her when he's just asking her why she would do this. She definitely seems brainwashed. Like, I don't know, unless you're like got mental health issues, like maybe you're schizophrenic. I don't understand how somebody becomes this brainwashed just by like one other person. But she seems like on top of that, just a sociopathic narcissist at her core. So 
just really interesting to watch. If you're a fan of true crime or followed this case at all, watch Sins of Our Mother on Netflix. The other show I started this weekend is called Fate, the Winx Saga. I know (laughs) the name is so terrible. It's so cheesy. But if you're at all into fantasy, like Harry Potter, X-Men, Lord of the Rings, or the Vampire Diaries, I think you will love this show. It's about a group of supernatural teens who attend a magical boarding school called Althea to hone their skills and powers. The name is cheesy, parts of it are cheesy, but I do love how high school elements and experiences are woven into the supernatural storyline. Of course, people have magical powers. That's exciting. I always love seeing that. Apparently, the show is based on a Nickelodeon animated series called Winx, which I'd never heard of and I've obviously never watched. But the live action version is very entertaining. And like I said, if you love any of those other things I mentioned, it it definitely reminds me of Harry Potter and X-Men, mostly because they're at a boarding school for people with powers. So if you like those, I think you should give it a try. It's on Netflix. It's called Fate, the Winx Saga. In terms of things I've been listening to, I started the audiobook called The Golden Couple by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen. It's about a couple whose marriage is on the rocks and they decide to go to counseling sessions to fix their relationship. The kind of twist, though, is that their therapist is no longer licensed and uses unethical practices for delving into their relationship to find the real source of the damage. I'm only about halfway through, but I'm definitely enjoying it. It's told from the perspective of the therapist and the wife, so trading off to show the difference in perspective of various situations. Anyway, so far so good. I'll report back next week. I'm sure I'll finish it by then. I've been listening on my walks each morning, so getting through it. And then another thing I listened to last week that I highly recommend is the Mindy Kaling episode on Archetypes, Meghan Markle's podcast. Truth be told, I didn't enjoy the episode with Mariah Carey. It just felt all over the place, and I don't feel like I got anything out of it. But Mindy's episode was so incredible, so relatable. The topic was the stigma of the singleton. So the two discuss all things related to being single as a professional woman, as a single mother. She shares her frustrations with not meeting men she feels are her equals in terms of ambition and work, her thoughts on settling versus settling down, what it's been like to raise children as a single woman, etc. There are so many important messages in this episode that I think all women could benefit from and most can relate to. I find myself vocally agreeing while on my walk listening and at certain points almost teared up and I'm not a crier. So I've never felt so connected to or related to a subject more. So please listen to that episode. It's on Archetypes on Spotify and it's Meghan Markle's podcast with Mindy Kaling. Even if you're not a fan of Meghan Markle, I think you will really enjoy that episode. Before we get into this week's topic, let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. As you guys know, I'm doing my best to be consistent in terms of eating healthy and sticking to my workout routine, but as you guys know, not every day is perfect. Some days like this past Saturday, all I eat are carbs and I don't get out of bed. Even on days where I'm not totally on top of my diet, I know I'm making at least one healthy choice when I take AG1 from Athletic Greens. I've been drinking AG1 for two months now, and it's been the perfect micro habit to incorporate into my morning routine that ensures my day starts out on a healthy note. I mix one scoop of AG1 with eight ounces of a really cold water and then toss it back on an empty stomach before I get to work making my breakfast in the morning. 
With just that one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. I love how Athletic Greens focuses on just one product and making that product the best it can be. They use the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Plus, it costs you less than $3 a day. It's much cheaper than getting all of the different supplements yourself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash beck and call. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash beck and call to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. For this week's topic, I thought we'd do another influencing behind the scenes episode. The first one I did was in November of last year, which I kind of can't believe I thought I'd done another one, but that was the only one I've done. So if you haven't listened to that, go back to episode 10 to hear the ins and outs of making money through blogging and being an Instagram influencer. In this episode, though, I had you guys submit questions on this topic on the Beck and Call podcast Instagram page. So I'm basically just going to go through those and answer in as much detail as I can. I did organize them um, on purpose so that we could go through kind of how to get brand deals, where you find sponsors, and then sort of the more nitty gritty about what goes on with the sponsorships. So let's get into it. So the first question is, how long did it take you to get brand deals? So for me, in terms of gifting, I feel like I kind of got those collaborations pretty early in the game, maybe within a year of starting my blog. But it wasn't until a few years in that I started getting paid a flat fee for sponsored content. At that point, I was already making a decent amount of money with affiliate marketing, aka LTK, formerly known as Reward Style. And I was able to secure some brand partnerships just by being able to show my conversion rates. And when you think of these brand deals, you're probably thinking, oh, it must be a lot of money. Early on, it's not. It might be a couple hundred dollars. And then as you grow, you get to be a little more selective about who you work with and what your rates are. And so my rates have increased over the years and I can be more selective now than I was back then when I was just trying to make money. So the next question says, how do you find and get sponsors? So there are a few ways influencers can get sponsors. The first is that the brand reaches out to the influencer directly after doing their own research on who they might want to work with. The second is that a brand might be working with a PR company, an affiliate marketing network like LTK, or some sort of agency or marketing company, like I said, that has a list of influencers they might suggest a brand use for collaboration based on their goals, the brand aesthetic, the markets they're trying to get into, so say location. The third way is that influencers can reach out to brands directly and express an interest in working together. I would say most influencers today have probably done all three. For me personally, most of the collaborations I commit to come through LTK. I get emails from PR companies and influencer marketing agencies a lot, but most of these days, those are for Instagram story only collaborations and they just don't pay a lot, but still expect a lot in return. And at this point in my career, I'd prefer to work with brands who want to invest in more than just one-off story posts. So I turn down most of those opportunities. But on the bright side, this means that there's less sponsored content and clogging up my Instagram stories for you guys. As I mentioned before, most of the collaborations I commit to happen through LTK. 
I prefer to do it through them because they manage all of the communication with the brand, including negotiations. They send through all of the details I need to know. There's a portal to submit the completed sponsored content at the end. It's just more convenient and organized for me than working directly with the brand sometimes, as well as with agencies. So also LTK has the data to prove I perform and convert well for the brands I want to work with. So I get paid more with LTK collaborations than I do with ones where the brand reaches out directly or an influencer marketing agency is doing the outreach. I feel like outside of LTK collaborations, I always get lowballed on the flat fee and they expect so much for so little money. At LTK, they know exactly how much I'm willing to accept and don't send me projects for less than that, which I very much appreciate. Okay, the next question says, how do you select who you want to work with? So for me, it's all about brand fit. I want to partner with brands I'm already buying and love organically. My blog has a luxury niche and I mostly shop contemporary and high-end labels. So if I partnered with a brand like Walmart to promote clothing, it wouldn't make any sense. If it's not something that I would wear or promote without getting paid, I just pass on it. It's not worth it. So this isn't just for types of brands, but specific products as well. So I once had Neiman Marcus reach out for a paid partnership promoting a specific shoe style from a well-known designer. And while I love Neiman Marcus and I love the designer, I hated the shoe style. (laughs) So I passed on it and it was a, it was a nice amount of money, but they were just really wanting to push that particular shoe style. And it was not my style at all. So I passed and I'm grateful I do well enough to pass on partnerships that don't make sense for me and my brand. I can't say I've always done that though. Like the first few years I was able to secure partnerships, I kind of took anything I could get. I did some really random collaborations with brands I didn't shop often, and naturally they didn't perform well because they weren't me. Staying true to myself and my brand really has been the best way to succeed here. So my advice for anyone listening is to ignore what's popular and what other people are doing and ignore the cash grabs if you can. Although, like I said, I did it myself when I first got started because you know, the money is enticing and I wasn't making much back then. So just do your best to stay true to yourself and establish your own look and choose brands that make sense for you. How long is the contract process when negotiating an agreement? So it usually only takes a couple of days if everyone is responsive, but of course some people don't respond within a day. And so it can get dragged out if people are out of town, all of that. But as I mentioned earlier, LTK knows my rates. So I rarely have to negotiate unless there's a collaboration requirement I'm not okay with. Outside of LTK, negotiations usually only take a few days. Oftentimes I'll name my price and sometimes they'll walk away or they'll remove some content requirements to lower the price. It definitely depends on the project, though. Some can take longer than others, depending on the content asks or if they have specific guidelines in their contract that you want removed. Like recently I did one and they had a lot of non-compete things that were really over the top um, for like a single story collaboration. (laughs) And so I had to negotiate a few days with them on that to kind of take it down a little bit. Do you have a lawyer who reviews contracts for you? So I do have a lawyer, but I mostly use them for backend business stuff like employment agreements for the employees I've had. I've only ever really used an entertainment lawyer to review a contract that had to do with a line of work I wasn't familiar with. So this was back when I was approached about being on a reality show in Dallas with some other influencers. I had him review the contract. and After speaking with him about it, I decided not to go through with it. But influencer campaign contracts are fairly easy to go through on your own and most look the same. So I review them all myself now. 
I would imagine that people who have an agency that they work with, they do that for them, but I generally know what I'm looking at. And if not, yes, I will contact a lawyer to kind of help me out. How does a brand decide to partner for a second time? Conversion to sales of products? Each brand may have a different goal for their campaign, whether that's simply driving sales, driving awareness to a particular product or item they're carrying, or getting people to participate in an, or attend an event, which that could be online or in store. While the goals may vary, at the end of the day, I think most brands are looking for sales conversions. While there's absolutely a lot of value in influencers spreading brand awareness, there's no real way to prove the ROI on that like there is with driving sales using trackable links. Thanks to affiliate marketing and technology, now brands can see which individual influencers are sending them the most traffic and the most revenue. So when they're doing paid collaborations, they'll pay the influencer a flat fee. The influencer will use a trackable link and then the brand can look back and see, okay, this was worth the money. We, we paid X amount for this influencer and she drove X amount in sales. Is the copy of a sponsored post written by the brand? How much creative direction is given? So this totally depends on the brand and the type of campaign. Some brands will just say, pick whatever you want to talk about. Just make sure you choose full priced items and leave the creative direction entirely up to you. While others give you a theme to focus on, brand guidelines, or even a small list of product to choose from, they'll ask for content previews and request changes or edit the content. But it totally depends. I obviously prefer when I have complete freedom and control because it's the best way to ensure everything is done in my voice and will resonate with my readers. The less creative control I have, the less I enjoy the collaboration too. Sometimes it just feels like too much red tape and I can't fully say what I want to say. The whole point of partnering with influencers is because their followers and readers trust their opinions. So when you take that creative control away, the content is likely to not feel as organic. It can feel forced. It feels too much like a regular advertisement. And even with all of the disclosures, you still want the content to feel natural and relatable. So that's why I think it's better to give the influencer more creative control because then they can do everything in their own voice and their readers will respond better to it. To answer your question, I would guess 99% of the time the content is written by the influencer or blogger and not by the brand. The brand may have a specific line or link they want you to include on the post, but otherwise the copy is up to the content creator. The amount of direction given changes from brand to brand, and unless the brand asks for a content preview to approve, they do not have final say in the creative slash copy. Some do this and some don't. It just totally depends. How long do deals typically work? Timeline or number of posts? So for a long time, I did a lot of one-off campaigns with brands, but these days I'm seeing more long-term partnerships. If you follow me on Instagram or read my blog, you may recognize some familiar brands I feature nearly every single month. Some of those include Nordstrom, Saks Fifth Avenue, My Teresa, and it's because I have an ongoing partnership throughout the year with them. I prefer those mostly because it's brands I'm very comfortable with and I know what they're expecting and wanting out of the partnership and they sort of know the kind of content that I like and obviously like me enough to continue doing it on a month to month basis. Plus, it's nice to know I have a specific amount of income I can expect from those ongoing collaborations. I still do and enjoy one off collaborations, though. For example, I partnered with Lake Pajamas to promote their summer sale in July. And in August, I did another one off collaboration with Reformation. 
And the one-off collaborations are usually focused on promoting a specific collection or brand while the ongoing partnerships offer a little more creative freedom because you're working with them every month. You can kind of just see what's seasonally attractive to you kind of choose a theme based on the time of year. So fall weddings, for example, there's just a little more flexibility with those ongoing partnerships than there usually is in a one-off campaign. In terms of billing though, it definitely comes down to the number of posts, how much content and promotion the brand is asking for. So not so much the timeline, but the set of content requirements. And I can't speak for all influencers, but I do feel, feel like this is pretty common. Are there any limits on promoting competing brands during a collaboration? Yes. So most of the time there's some sort of non-compete in the contract. If a brand is paying you a flat fee for a dedicated blog post, they obviously don't want you linking to anyone but them in that post. The same goes for social media posts, although it's a little different there. There's usually a timeline involved, like not posting a direct competitor or posting other sponsored content within that same day in your stories or something like that. Why are some brands pushed so hard by so many? So this is something the brand wants and is included in the campaign guidelines. So when this happens, it's not an accident. So this is something you can blame the brand for, not the influencers. If the brand has a lot of money and wants to push a particular product, they're going to hire as many influencers as they can within that budget. They're also the ones making the decision in terms of when to push the campaign live. So if the brand wants all of the posts happening on the same day, then you're going to see a lot of influencers promoting the same product the same day on your feed. I know it can be annoying, but again, it's not really the influencer's fault. It's the brand wanting a bunch of content pushed by a lot of different people on the very same day. What's the craziest amount you've heard people get paid for an ad or a partnership? I mean, millions. <laughs> there are mega influencers like Chiara Ferragni who have become the face of beauty brands and ambassadors of luxury fashion houses. And those kinds of partnerships are massive and pay the big bucks. What's a press mailer and how is it different from a sponsored post? Are you obligated to post? So a press mailer is a package put together by a brand or PR company on behalf of a brand that is sent out to editors, influencers, or anyone else in a field that could potentially be talking about the brand. It's typically sent without expectations or obligations for the receiver to post. The hope is that the influencer will talk about it, of course, but there's no guarantee because there's no contract in place. So with sponsored content, a brand is paying an influencer a flat fee to guarantee exposure with a dedicated blog post, Instagram feed post, a series of Instagram stories, or whatever other content that brand is requesting. So sponsored content equals getting paid for dedicated promotion. There is a contract in place. It is all written out, set in stone. And press mailers are just gifts brands send in hopes you'll talk about it for free. What do you do with the free stuff you get from brands if you don't like it? I usually give it to my housekeeper. I'll offer it to my assistant, Liza. I've even handed it out to friends. Like at my last house, I had so many skincare and beauty products I knew I was never going to get to, and they'd go bad if they were just sitting there. So I put together sort of a gift bag and people could come and just take stuff whenever they come over. But to be honest, it's rare I receive press packages anymore, though. So before I moved into my first house, I reached out to everyone I could think of who had ever sent me a mailer and asked to be removed from their lists. It's so wasteful. And more often than not, the stuff I was being sent was stuff I didn't want or like. And oftentimes you just end up on lists that these lists are like passed around from agency to agency. And like oftentimes you get 
packages from places you have no idea where they came from. You don't know how to cancel your subscription. There's no subscription. They just like keep sending you stuff. So it's really wasteful. And like I said, more often than not, it's not stuff I wanted. So I really tried to limit that. I still occasionally get them, but most of the time people reach out before they send stuff and have to ask for my new address. So that's really helpful. I can weed out the stuff I know I don't want very early on. How do we as followers spot the bullshit? I feel like sometimes bloggers do collaborations with brands or feature products they don't actually like. This is tough because I think it just comes down to how much you trust the influencer you follow. If they're doing a new collaboration with a different brand every single day, or they're partnering with brands that don't make any sense based on their current content, be skeptical. But otherwise, if the partnerships they have make sense for their content and their brand, like that's a great opportunity to support the influencers you enjoy following because your support helps them get more partnerships, which helps them maintain their business and keep them creating free content for you guys. Like I said before, if they're doing a new collaboration with a different brand every single day, I might be a little skeptical. I've seen this a lot more with all of these Instagram story only collaborations, which is why I've become so selective about which ones I choose to do. I used to get contacted by one particular influencer marketing agency all the time. And anytime they offered anything, it was only a story only collaboration. That's all they were willing to offer. And like, I swear four times a week, I would get contacted for a new story only collaboration. And they always reached out with the same list of content guidelines and would fight me every time I shared my rates. It was maddening. (laughs) I think in all of the times they'd reached out to me, I'd only signed on for two of those collaborations, but I see influencers who seem to do every single one. It can certainly become a cash grab, but I think those are pretty easy to spot if you're watching people's stories every day. If an influencer who only links to expensive stuff is suddenly showing Walmart fashion, that's a cash grab. If it seems unrealistic and not on brand for them and the other content they put out there, they just wanted the money. And honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking the money when you need it, but I just think it's not the best way to build trust with your readership and may lead to less partnerships in the long run. So I've always tried to stay true to myself, Um, especially as I've been able to be a little bit more flexible and not accept as many projects. I can be a little more choosy now. How do you get invited to a fashion show at New York Fashion Week? A lot about New York Fashion Week, at least when I went, was about who you know. So either the brand or the PR company representing the brand needs to know who you are. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a massive influencer. I mean, I still have less than 100,000 followers on Instagram, but Perhaps you have a friend who works for the brand or for the PR company. That's initially how I got into my first few shows back in 2012. I had a family friend who worked at Oscar de la Renta and she managed to snag me an invite. I also became friendly with some people I met on the brand side when I worked at LTK and they would invite me to events and their shows when I came in town for fashion week. So in addition to making introductions to brands yourself, you can also sign up for press credentials through the New York Fashion Week website. While that doesn't guarantee you'll be invited to the bigger shows, you'll often get invited to smaller events or presentations by new or up and coming designers, which is still very fun. What are your top three dream partnerships? This is such a good question. (laughs) Honestly, it would probably have to do with travel, like a partnership with a luxury hotel group, such as the Four Seasons, who would give me free nights or a major discount at their various properties. 
Partnership with an airline would be amazing as well to get free flights or good discounts. And this is probably lame, but a partnership with Peloton would be pretty incredible too. Although I already have their tread and their bike, so I'm not sure (laughs) how helpful that would be, but I still, I love Peloton. I would love if they noticed me. In terms of fashion, I feel like I've had the chance to work with so many amazing stores and brands already from multi-brand luxury retailers like Neiman Marcus and My Teresa to designers like Gucci, but one I would absolutely love to collaborate with would be Zimmerman. I just buy so much of it on my own. I love all of their pieces and it would be such a natural fit for me. It's just a dream. I love their pieces. I would love your tips and do's and don'ts from the business slash brand side. What turns you on and piques your interest that would motivate you to work with a brand? So first off, I want to be paid fairly. So many of the brands and influencer marketing agencies will try to lowball you and then make you feel like you charge too much if you're not willing to budge. I may not have a million Instagram followers, but I do have the data to prove my content is effective in driving sales. I'm at a point in my career where I can pick and choose who I want to work with. So it's not worth my time to negotiate with people who seem to think so little of what I'm able to offer, which is why I asked to be removed from that agency's list I mentioned earlier. When a brand reaches out to me and they say they really want to work with me, then they need to prove it and pay me what I know I'm worth. If you're a small business and don't have budget to work with more established influencers in a paid capacity, reach out to micro influencers and offer gifted product. This happened a lot when I first got started. I think for the first two to three years, I accepted a lot of gifted product and promoted a lot of brands without getting paid. So The best way is to give them the opportunity to pick a few things they might love to have from your website, not from a specific list that you've made for them. So give them full freedom to choose whatever they want from your website. I mean, you can limit how many items they choose, but don't be like, here, choose from these five things. When people have control over what they're getting, they're more likely to accept the gifted product. If you're going to go this route, I also would not include anything in your outreach like, I'd love to send you some items in exchange for you sharing on social media. I would instead say something like, I'd love to send you some pieces from the new collection. If you love them and happen to share them with your followers, that would be amazing, but no pressure. The emails that make it sound like it's a foregone conclusion that I must share the gifted product are ones that I get really turned off by and end up just like shutting them down and saying, I don't accept gifted product in exchange for promotion. So if you leave it up to the influencer and the influencer loves the item, they're going to share it. They're likely to share it. So In addition to being paid fairly, having creative freedom is pretty important to me. I will occasionally do a collaboration that is more strict, but oftentimes those just don't feel as organic and I don't love how they turn out as much. So pay people for their work and give them the freedom to do what they do best. Are there any legal guidelines for disclosing sponsored content? Yes. So we have to include wherever there's sponsored content, we have to disclose that. So on my blog, I'll usually say thanks to Nordstrom for sponsoring this post at the very bottom of the post. Um, On Instagram, it might be hashtag ad. Sometimes the brand has their own hashtag they want you to use. Like Saks is like Saks partner. And so I'll do that instead of ad just so they're able to find their sponsored content easily, I guess, for tax purposes and stuff. I don't, I don't know how that all works on their end, but yes, we do have to disclose. All right. And then we'll end on this one because the answer is a little funny, I guess. What's the craziest PR package you've ever received from a brand that you didn't ask for? (laughs) So I received one with lube recently, and that was pretty hilarious. I did not ask for it, but I also didn't throw it away. (laughs) So take that with what you will. 
I definitely plan to do more of these influencing behind the scenes episodes. So if you have any specific questions on these topics or requests for what topic to cover within the influencing industry to cover next, shoot me an email at info at beckandcallpodcast.com and I will make note of it. made it to the beck and call segment. If you're new here, this segment is dedicated to answering your listener questions. Whether you need advice from a non-expert or just have a question for me, all topics are welcome and I love variety. Call into the hotline at 214-620-0473 to leave a voicemail with your question or you can email it to info at beckandcallpodcast.com. I typically answer one voicemail and two email submissions a week, so keep them coming. The more, the better. And like I said, no topic is off limits. Let's get into this week's voicemail. Hi, Merritt. I'm loving listening to your podcast and look forward to it every week. Um, I really enjoyed your episodes about being single at um, your age and in your city. And while I'm married, I have a bunch of single friends and have tried to really be a helpful friend to them um, and setting them up and suggesting people that they might want to meet, that sort of thing. Um, I just wondered if you had any um, examples or experiences of some of your friends who have been really helpful in the dating department. Um, one of my friends and I just joined a cornhole league um, to help her get out and about into a new area of our city near where I live. Um, and we had a pretty real conversation um, at our cornhole league last night that she's just frustrated about how often she feels like she shows up for her friends with kids and those who are in sort of a different life stage that she is, um, but doesn't feel that reciprocated a lot. So any examples um, of how we can show up better for our women, friends, and the women in our lives um, would be great. Thanks so much. Bye. What a great question. First of all, thank you for calling in. While I love all the questions you guys submit, the voicemails are super fun for me to listen to. It makes you guys feel more real. So I've mentioned this before, but oftentimes when podcasting, I'm talking to myself and don't get a bunch of feedback and it can feel like I'm talking into a void. So the voicemails are a nice reminder that there are in fact people listening on the other end. If you do have a question for me, definitely consider calling the hotline at 214-620-0473. But let's get to your question. So I think it's really lovely that you are seeking out advice on this topic because it's clear you value this friendship a lot and want to show her you care. I also think it's amazing you signed up for a cornhole league with her as opposed to simply just trying to set her up on dates. By doing that, you're not only spending quality time with your friend, but you are actively playing the wing woman role. That is so awesome. I think that's such a great idea. I feel like so often once people settle down, they stop participating in consistent activities or hangouts like they used to before they got married. Or if they do those, they do them with other married couples. And I realize that once you're married, you're sharing a life with someone. And so your schedule often revolves around them and you make plans together as opposed to how you used to make a lot of more single person friends with your individual friends. But I do think it's unfortunate when people don't maintain their friendships like they used to. For example, only committing to one get together a month, if that, when you used to see someone once a week, if not more. While I wouldn't go so far to call it abandonment, it can feel very lonely when friends you used to count on seeing a lot sort of drop off and don't make plans as much. So I think the fact that you've committed to an activity that you guys are both participating in consistently together is really cool. 
A consistent commitment like that is hard to come by the older you get, especially with people having separate lives and schedules, and it shows you're committed to keeping up the friendship and want to spend time with them. Other ideas for this would be to start a game night with friends like Mahjong or Mexican Train. You could sign up with your friend for a monthly cooking class at Sur La Table or commit to one walk in your neighborhood every week or at your local trail or perhaps trying a new place for happy hour every other week or something like that just to keep getting them out and about, make yourself known, make yourself available to them to chat and hang out consistently. Another thing you can do is to celebrate her wins that are not relationship related. If she has exciting news at work or say she adopts a puppy or buys a house or starts a new side gig, celebrate those wins like you would relationship milestones. Finally, don't leave her out just because she's single. I was talking to my friend Catherine about this a couple weeks ago, but it sometimes frustrates me when I get left out because something becomes a couple's activity when it used to be a group thing. Uh, and it's now couples only like a trip or a dinner out. And she told me when she was single again, a couple years ago, she made it clear to her friends she wanted to be included and that she was fine being the fifth wheel, but she felt like, you know, it might, she might be in this single season for a while and she didn't want to miss out on hanging out with them just because a lot of her friends were in couples and they were hanging out together. So I guess the idea is make your single friends feel welcome to join in on those occasions, especially if you're not able to make more consistent commitments to seeing them like you used to. Aside from just being there for your friend and spending quality time with her and, you know, setting her up when that comes up, I mean, you can't be responsible for her dating life, but you can show that you care by being around and inviting her and including her in things just making it clear and obvious that you're there to support her and help her and you want her around and all of that. I think those are all great things to do. Now let's get into this week's email submissions. This one reads, Hey Merit, I'm a blog reader, Insta follower, and podcast listener, and I'm loving listening each week. It feels like I'm listening to one of my girlfriends catch me up on their life. I'm sending in a question to potentially cover on the podcast. I'm curious how you handled your mom dating and getting married after your dad passed. My dad passed away unexpectedly when I was in my early 20s, and my mom started dating three years after he passed. I was extremely thrown off and upset, but let it go because she deserves to be happy. She ended up dating a man, and things progressed quickly to moving in with each other a year later. The issue with this is me, my sibling, and husband do not like her boyfriend at all. He is someone I do not look up to or respect. He has alcohol issues and honestly is just trashy. I feel like my mom did not take into account how me and my siblings felt about who she was dating and just moved forward full throttle. This has caused distance between us and it has been really hurtful and sad to feel like I lost my one remaining parent. So my question is, how did you handle the transition for your mom dating and bringing a new man into your lives? Do you think widowed or divorced parents should take their children's opinions into account when deciding who to be in a serious relationship with? If this is too personal to answer, I completely understand. Thanks for all you do. Thank you so much for writing in. I'm so glad to hear you love the podcast. I'm so sorry for your loss, first of all. Um, I mean, I can relate, obviously. This is an interesting question, and I'm definitely happy to answer. However, I do want to note that any person you ask would likely have a different answer and opinion on this, depending on their own relationship with their parents and how the marriage ended, whether it be death, divorce, et cetera. And just your own individual feelings about grief and moving on. We all grieve at a different pace. 
So I just wanted to remind you all that these are just my opinions. And also I'm not a therapist and these are just my thoughts. So um, keep that all in mind. But my mom waited about five years after my dad died to start dating again, which is a fairly long time. And from my perspective, my mom was grieving my dad's death long after he died. I simply don't think she was ready to date. And so she waited a long time before she even considered the possibility. And I don't think it was necessarily for our sake. I just don't think she ever envisioned a life without my dad. And coming to terms with that took her an awful long time. She eventually did start dating. And I think both my sister and I were just happy to see her getting back out there. We both wanted her to be happy and have a full life. And for her, a big part of that was having someone to spend her life with. With it being five years, I don't think either of us were surprised or upset that she was going to start dating. Five years is a long time. And in fact, I remember at one point I was in Austin for the weekend and she had a date, a first date. And I remember helping her with her makeup and helping her select an outfit. I was just so excited for her to have something to be excited about after so many years of grief. I think my sister and I just both really wanted her to be happy. She didn't go out with a ton of men before she met my stepdad and met him pretty early on when she first started dating again. And at their age, things just move faster. They got engaged almost exactly a year later and got married just a few months after that. And while that seems fast, you do have to kind of consider their age and also that at this point in their life, they know what they're looking for and are ready to start their lives. I think it's a little different with younger people because when you're young, you want to make sure you have the same values and goals for your life when you're figuring out if a person is right for you. But in your 50s and 60s, you can see some pretty clear evidence of what a person is like based on the lives they've carved out for themselves, the choices they've made, the families and lifestyles they have, etc. So my sister and I are lucky in that we both love Morris, my stepdad. He is wonderful to my mom. He is wonderful to us. And so we've never had any reason to doubt him. I'm sure my mom asked our opinions after we met him, but she's also an adult who's capable of making her own decisions and doesn't need to ask permission or approval on who to date, just like we don't as adults. Um, I'm sure you wouldn't want your mom telling you who to date. So I do think she would have listened to us if we'd had concerns. But at the end of the day, it's her life and her decision to make. And while I think we'd all like to believe our parents would drop anything for us and would truly take our opinions to heart when making decisions like this, especially ones that could affect the family dynamic, they're flawed just like us and may make choices we might not understand or respect. Well, I think there are some situations where children should absolutely be considered. I'm really thinking of small children here in the case of like a divorce or introducing kids to a new Um, significant other. But in most cases, I think people often need to figure these things out for themselves. I can't imagine how tough that would be to watch your mom with someone you dislike so much and don't have respect for. But aside from sitting her down and expressing your feelings about it, I don't feel like there's much else you can do. It's possible she's very codependent and just looking for someone, anyone to fill that void. And I'm sure it's very painful to feel that she's choosing this guy over a relationship with you. Hopefully she'll eventually come to her senses and drop the guy, but until she makes that decision on her own, you just need to do what's best for you. And if that means pulling away and spending less time with her and setting boundaries, then do that. Or perhaps you suggest a family therapy session where you, your sibling, and your mom can sit down and discuss the situation with an unbiased third party. Like I said before, I'm so sorry for your loss and I'm sorry that you're struggling with this and with your relationship with your mom. I I can't imagine that. I mean, dealing with the passing of your father is traumatic enough and then having to 
kind of have a pained relationship with your other parent. Um, that's something I definitely would not want to deal with myself. So, um, sending you love. I hope that you guys can come to some sort of resolution and get on the same page about it and kind of mend your relationship. All right, moving on to the last email submission. Hi, Merritt. Love your podcast. I am a nervous flyer and was actually on a flight last weekend and had downloaded your podcast as a wonderful distraction while in flight. I'm wondering, since you travel a lot, if you can discuss if you are a nervous flyer and or how you handle stressful flights. The pilot put the seatbelt sign on mid-flight in anticipation of bad turbulence, and I nearly died. I'm going to London in a few months and already have a pit in my stomach. Thank you for writing in, and I'm glad my podcast was a good distraction on your latest flight. I can definitely relate. Turbulence can be so unsettling and upsetting. For me, it's all about control. So I think part of the reason why I'm such a control freak is because of how my dad died. So if you're new here, he died in an aviation accident when I was a freshman in college. It's made me very aware of my mortality, and I feel like as long as I'm in control, I'll stay safe. And I know this isn't healthy and I know it's somewhat delusional, but it helps me. And I love to travel, but I hate to fly because I don't enjoy feeling like my life is in someone else's hands. That's also why I prefer to drive over being a passenger in a car. And it's also why I hate going to really crowded places and feeling trapped. There's an obvious lack of control in a plane for anyone other than the pilots. So I'm definitely on edge whenever I'm flying. Absolutely. One thing that has helped me is to actually look at the statistics of commercial plane crashes, which may sound baffling to you. But for example, there was a one in a 3.37 billion chance of dying in a commercial plane crash between 2012 and 2016. One in 3.37 billion. The odds are absolutely in your favor. I mean, I can't even imagine a scenario in which that would happen based on those odds. Another thing to consider and remember is that it is very rare for turbulence to cause a plane crash. Turbulence is a rapid change in the speed or pressure of a fluid. So in this case, air. I did a little Google research just now and read there are three categories of airplane turbulence, mild, moderate, and severe. Mild is routine and something most flights experience. Moderate turbulence may entail a a deviation, excuse me, of 10 to 20 feet in altitude and last 10 to 15 minutes. And severe turbulence may cause the plane to drop 80 to 100 feet and can cause injury to passengers if they're not wearing their seatbelts. But severe turbulence is super rare. Most flyers don't encounter severe turbulence over flying their entire lives. And that includes pilots too. Like that's how rare it is. So what you're experiencing is probably mild or moderate. And even moderate doesn't cause injuries according to this thing. So In addition to knowing and reminding myself of the statistics, incredibly low probability of me ever being in a commercial plane crash. Another thing that has helped me is to fly more. Um, And I know that's a privileged thing to say, but the more you do it, the more you'll get used to it. Just like anything else. It's kind of like exposure therapy, if you will. When there's bad turbulence, I'm scared. Absolutely. But once the air is smooth again, I can forget about it and get back to the podcast or audiobook I'm listening to. The more I fly, the more comfortable I get. All right, guys, that's it for this week's episode of Beck and Call. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts, as well as sharing the podcast with any friends, family members, or coworkers who might be interested in it. You can follow along on Instagram at Beck and Call Podcast for episode visual guides, audio clips, and more. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.